Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, Keeping Watch Treatment Response in CML. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with that point of care and projects and knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. What are the treatment response benchmarks when treating chronic myeloid leukemia, and when, if ever, should therapies be switched? Moreover, how do you know if they are working? Dr. Gerald Radich and Dr. Michael Morrow discuss these questions and more. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CML4. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Radich is professor in the Clinical Research Division of Fred Hutchinson's Cancer Center in Seattle. Dr. Morrow is a professor of medicine and leader of the Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program in the Leukemia Service, Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Radich will begin our discussion. Hi, Mike. How are you? Good, good. I'm, uh... Sorry, I'm... I'm in the subway. Hold on. I'm just about to stop here. All right. So, well, I'm a, okay. you might hear some dogs in the background here. Um, that hot air balloon we got put in the Cascades. It's a little snowy. I've got a, unfortunately, I ran into a dog team, so I'm sledding back home now. Very nice. Should be there, should be there hopefully soon. Um, so we've marched through a few of these podcasts, but uh, and so now we're coming into kind of something that that my life kind of revolves around. That's about measuring treatment response in CML. Um, where to put this in context now? To me, the two big questions in CML are when to switch therapy and when to stop therapy. Yeah, I, to me, I think those are the two things that that that, that really where the field is kind of you know hedging going on. Um, and so much of this is built around, you know, CML treatment response and how we measure that and the like. And I think the listeners might appreciate some historical context here and how kind of how lucky we are. Um, you know, when the first IRIS trial started, which was the randomized trial between imatinib and interferon ARC, um, they built into it molecular monitoring. And, and um, so the places, the only places that were doing molecular monitoring there in those days with the transplant centers because you know you didn't get good enough responses with interferon no one really cared what the response was um, but in transplant you did and so there were three major places that did transplants and be able and they were seattle the hammersmith and 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 tim in adelaide right and so the, we were the centers that came along for the that ride you got to tell us the story that this is this is like the birth of molecular monitoring in CML. You were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is so it's it, but it kind of shows how lucky we were and how how things came out okay, even though they didn't do anywhere as planned. And so the original plan was that every patient would have a diagnostic sample and then peripheral blood samples, and we would do them at three, six, and nine months because that's how we did it in transplant. We didn't know any better, um, and then everyone's level would be compared to their diagnostic level. They would be their own control, right? And so samples, we wanted samples sent directly to the molecular labs. The company involved with this trial decided not to and use third-party people. Um, those third-party people were trained on how to store samples and the like uh, before the study began. 
but they failed miserably. And when the first lots of samples came and were sent to the th three testing centers, virtually all the diagnostic samples were bad. So out of the 500 samples that could, could potentially be used, there were only 40 that had usable RNA. Oh, no. And so what we did is we said, okay, we're going to just average all of those 40, and that's going to be the baseline for every patient, and then we're going to use their subsequent things against that, right? And that's how the international scale evolved. It was completely salvaging what we had in the trial. And then MMR happened because we were going over the data one night. Um, I was always 3 a.m. my time. And we just analyzed the data and where you had a three log reduction is where you saw a survival difference. And Tim, we decided we had to call it something. So Tim, I think, came up with the name MMR. And we just put it in the paper. I don't think we ever thought it was going to stick. Um, but it turned out to be, for some reason, biologically useful. And here we are, where you know we now know that MMR is, is a great goal. I mean, once you get under that, if you have a safe harbor, but um, and it turns out that you know it's the basis for really the whole benchmark of all therapies now is based on this international scale that we barely salvage by the skin of our teeth. You clearly that that is great history. Um, you made this, <laughs> you made a great point though. You said um, when do we switch therapy and when do we stop therapy? So. Back to MMR, maybe. Um, tell me about the, uh, where did we come up with the idea about safe haven and what does that mean? What that means is that, is that once you get under the MMR level, your chance of relapse is exceedingly low. And typically, if we see patients that do, you have to really worry about adherence because that's your most likely culprit. And because sometimes, especially if people are paying for the drug, if you've got them in a position where they've got that little disease, it's kind of tempting to kind of take a holiday, right? Um, there are cases that really do come back, but they're very, very, very rare. How long do you wait, Jerry? How long do you wait for major molecular response? Because I, you know, I think we know we can't be patient waiting for a hematologic response for sure. Um, we want to have relative patients for cytogenetic response, although not great patients. But molecular response, how long do you wait? Well, I think the guidelines would suggest that, that you know, that you like to see it by 12 months, but I think most people will wait for 18 months mm. and, and sometimes longer. Although, you know, realistically, if you look at the survival, that if you're in at 1%, which is basically cytogenetic remission, and between that and MMR, there's a, a little bit of a survival advantage compared to being below MMR, but it's not like, you know, unbelievably different. I think that everyone would agree, would agree that if you don't get to complete cytogenetic remission, right, or 1% by the international scale, something needs to be done. That's, that's definite. I think that's a great point. And then, you know, if you're in cytogenetic remission, that means you may be some, you're probably somewhere close to major molecular remission. Um, so so one, one landmark begets the next. All right. So then give us wisdom on, on this whole deal about PCR. You know, I hear it all. I hear my PCR is not negative. Shouldn't it be negative? Uh, it went from 0 0.003 to 0 0.005. I'm in trouble. I'm coming to see you because my doctor's worried. Um, what's the deal there? What's the deal with molecular remission? Yes. Like any test, um, as you get to the threshold of limit of detection, the test kind of falls apart some. So you, if you can imagine if you did an XY plot where you did you know, two replicas on the same sample, um, most of these technologies are a little bit wide up on top, but they're like 100% mark. They're optimized for the kind of the middle range. And then the very limit of detection, 
they kind of fall apart. And some of that's because technical reasons, uh, you know, you have a rare molecule, you might find it, you might not. Um, so I don't panic easily anyway, um, but I certainly don't panic on very low numbers fluctuating around, right? Yeah. Because it, now, the other thing that people don't think about um, is that before there was TKIs, there's a large body of literature about the uh, oscillations that happen in CML counts, where if you follow patients, you can have 10 to 50 fold difference in white blood cell counts oscillating up and down over time. No one knows quite what drives. There's a lot of mathematical data, uh, literature out there. But a lot of what you might be seeing at the very bottom, where people kind of come up and they disappear and come up and they disappear, just could be the oscillations that occur normally in the disease that are just taken down so far, right? So you only see when they blip up and down. I typically don't worry about someone's BCA-ABLE increasing unless it is just increasing serially you know, and stepwise and, you know, positive way, like 0.3 to 0.5, back down to 0.3, that doesn't count. It's got to be marching, right? Because if it's biology, it should kind of march up. Yeah. So are there, um, are there like key, are there, what's your key molecular threshold where you say, in most instances, you ought to be thinking about changing therapies? I usually use MMR, if you break through MMR. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you've assuaged anxiety many times, um, by you know interpreting some of these deep responses, and I know a lot of people tend to want to check again, check more often. We we clearly have a different schema for treatment cessation, and um, you know what 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 how should that be looking? I think that that's evolved too. Um, how do we monitor on treatment? What about once we're in treatment, free remission? Well, a lot of well, the issue is on treatment, and um, you know I don't want to change the guidelines here, but um, I feel a little bad about this because I helped write some of these guidelines, right? But but when, <laughs> when we say that people should be monitored every three months, um, part of that is because that's what we always did in the transplant setting. And part of that is because we thought that was, we, we, it, we suspected that it, adherence to those guidelines was going to be tough in the communities as tests, you know, a long time ago were hard and people weren't used to doing it. And we thought it was just an easy number to remember, right? We, we thought that if you did if you, if you made it too complicated, if you said, you know, every three months and then when you're down at this level for so many years, you can go, blind. we thought that was just going to be too complicated. Right? So we just said every three months. Now, I am sure, I mean, this isn't, there's no science behind this, you know, and, and Moses didn't come down you know, with a tablet or anything and say it's got to be every three months forever. Um, and I'm sure we probably monitor too much. And the reason I say that is if you look at patients who have been treated um, on the MAX Foundation, which, you know, is a, a way that patients in the developing world can get TKIs for free, and they take care of over 60,000 patients now. Um, when we've looked at their survival data, survival data of the of patients on that program is essentially the same as if you've got CML in New York City. So, and, and those people are not being monitored very often, if at all. Um, so I think that the point is, what you need to do is take your drug. You know, and, and monitoring is, uh, is, I think, important in that, you know, now that we have the technology, I think it, it, it does cause some anxiety, but also some relief in a lot of people. It'd be hard to throw the genie away now, but I think that in the future of, of several groups now are getting, we have enough data longitudinally that we're trying to build up some different algorithms about, you know, how often you should be tested. For instance, it's likely that someone whose disease just falls off of the face of the earth 
will probably not need as much monitoring as someone who took two years to get to MMR. Yeah. Right? Those are two different things entirely. I'm thinking. And you, treat, and you treat them the same way, which is probably not that rational. I know people like that. I, I yep, I hear you. Yeah. What about, um, do you think we'll ever stop monitoring patients with CMO, the, the, the treatment free remission patients? No, I have a lab open. <laughs> we want to keep you in business. But, um, what, <laughs> Gary, what, what's the deal with people who are in remission with CML? They stop their therapy, but their PCR is still positive. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I, I've heard some interesting thoughts on that, but what, what's, your, what's your take on that? Um, I think there can be, there, there's a few possibilities. One is that um, we know that, that B-serial abel uh, uh, occurs in the stem cell and that you can find the Philadelphia chromosome or B-serial abel in T-cells and B-cells. So it may well be that you're just de 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 uh, detecting um, the signal in a cell type that is irrelevant, right? That's one possibility. The other possibility is that there's some immune stuff going on. All of us have, who have discontinued patients have some patients who's the visceral rises and gets almost to MMR and just stops. We all have some of those. And that's got to be something like immunological intervention, right? But they and, look a lot of like interferon-treated patients. So you, yeah, you, yeah, and, yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting because you know, it's kind of a flip side of this is um, if you look at patients who have a great response to TKIs and look at their samples of diagnosis, of the top 10 biological pathways that are upregulated in those patients, they're all based on the immune system. So the immune system has some major way of controlling this disease. And I suspect what's happening when you discontinue people is that disease starts rising and that signals memory immune pathways that, that you sort of suppress it. This is good stuff. I, I try to teach my patients about this because they're all kind of thinking it's black and white, you know, it's negative, positive, cured, not cured, but yeah. it's, a, it's a great story in CML. We have this treatment-free remission and I think we just learned a whole lot about how to get from A to Z. Leukemia, leukemia all cancer is, is I think, best thought as, as an ecosystem. And I think that's the complexity that's involved and, and the patterns that arise and go away and the like all have to do with interactions of, you know, ecologically diverse things in your marrow. Immune cells, mesenchymal cells, tumor cells. It's all part of this wonderful rainbow of biology. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. I, I can't believe I've done an entire podcast while waiting for my train, but you know, I think I see that. I think I see my train coming, Jerry. So okay, I'm gonna uh, hop on and uh, I'm gonna stop and feed the dogs. Thank you for shedding so much light on this uh, topic of monitoring and keeping watch for CML. Yep. Thanks. I'll see you around. Talk soon. Yep. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash CML4. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app for your iPhone. Thank you for joining us today.